This is CNN Breaking News. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 43 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper, and welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Western Ukraine. A warning today from the Ukrainian foreign minister that the fight for the Donbass region in southeastern Ukraine could be reminiscent of World War II. Dmitro Kuleba saying today that the heaviest fighting is yet to come, predicting thousands of tanks, armored vehicles, planes fighting in major formations for control of the region. Mr. Kuleba in Brussels today also made this plea to NATO nations, including the United States. Either you help us now, and I'm speaking about days, not weeks, or your help will come too late. And uh, many people will die. Many civilians will lose their homes. Many villages will be destroyed. One of the many cities already destroyed, Mariupol, which has been under siege for 40 days. The mayor there now estimates at least 5,000 people have been killed in his city alone, including, he says, more than 200 children. And a Ukrainian military commander still there tells CNN that Russian military forces are trying to wipe Mariupol, quote, off the face of the earth. This was the scene on the ground in eastern Ukraine earlier today. CNN's Ivan Watson witnessing crowds rushing to board an evacuation train heading from there to here to Lviv, where I am right now. Ukrainian government officials are also warning civilians across eastern Ukraine from the Donbass region to north to Kharkiv, that the Russians are advancing. In New York today, a largely symbolic but also necessary move, the United Nations voting to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. The council does not have any legal authority and indeed includes other countries that regularly violate human rights, including China. But the panel is conducting its own investigation into alleged Russian war crimes. CNN chief international anchor Christiana Mapor joins me now live from Kiev. And Christiane, what do you make of this comparison by Ukraine's foreign minister uh, that fighting in the east could soon resemble uh, the major formations and armaments of World War II? Well, look, I think he's probably absolutely right, because we have seen the retreat and the failure of Russian forces to get any of their strategic objectives anywhere else around the country. So what they have done and what they will continue to do, according to all the intelligence and from what they say themselves from Moscow, they are going to be redirecting all their firepower on that eastern part. And so when the foreign minister says that, he means tanks, he means heavy artillery, he means aircraft bombing from above, like the Blitz over London during World War II, that kind of thing. And that is why they are asking very, very firmly now, not for just what they're going to get, but when they're going to get it. As he said, we need the help now. In a few days, it could be too late. And that is the crux of the issue, that NATO needs to get the weaponry into the Ukrainian hands to defend themselves within the right period of time and not before it's too late. So that's what the, the Ukrainians are really asking for, because it seems, at least according to certain you know, a- a- analysts and the like, 
that what they want to do, the Russians, is to seize and hold and control that territory, expand what they have now along the east, keep the south, and then negotiate from there. Uh, some analysts have suggested that the Kremlin sees a sort of a north-south Korea divide, whereby they will have their, whatever it is, if their side's North Korea, I don't know, but in any event, to have that land and create, you know, that situation on a divided country. Um, and so that's the things that uh, obviously Ukraine is incredibly worried about because they don't want to give up any land and they want to push the Russians back to the Russian border. Christian, usually the Russians lie you know, very easily. Uh, they said they weren't going to invade Ukraine, to, you know, for starters. Um, but in an interview with Sky News today, the spokesman for the Kremlin, Dmitry Peskov, admitted that Russia has suffered, quote, significant losses uh, of troops in, in Ukraine. Um, Russia, in general, has not been willing to admit that the war is not going according to plan. Uh, is that significant, you think? I do. You know, it's interesting because I think now they have no choice, right? Because they have seen um, what's happened in, in most of the rest of the country and that body bags are going back to Russia and that Russian families will start, you know, talking about it and when they receive their dead. And so I think they're trying to get out potentially ahead of that. But interestingly, it was, in fact, even two weeks ago about that a Russian um, spokesperson said the same, um, actually put the level of, of casualties somewhere close to where U.S. and other NATO intelligence have put the level of Russian casualties. And then that was taken down uh, off the publication in which it was published. So maybe it's just now they're ready to say that because of the obvious nature of what everybody's being able to see on the ground as the Russians retreat. And the interesting part about that is, according to U.S. analysis and intelligence, once you lose a certain percentage of your fighting force, then you lose unit cohesion and you lose um, everything it takes to actually be able to wage a successful um, campaign. And we've seen that they were unable to wage a successful campaign in the rest of Ukraine. CNN's Christiana Mampour live for us in Kyiv this evening. Thank you so much. To the southeast now in the key port city of Mykolaiv, where nowhere is safe, nowhere from Russian strikes, including the city's cancer hospital, including a market full of civilians. CNN's Ben Wiedemann met some of the victims of Russia's latest brutality there and others desperately trying to get to safer ground. This has become Mikolaev's daily routine, picking up the pieces, sweeping away the wreckage from Russian missile attacks. Random shelling throughout the city with what appear to be cluster munitions. Glass shards and shrapnel tore into Marina. As she lies in a hospital, her thoughts are with her teenage daughter, also injured, now at a children's hospital. My daughter and I were caught between two bombs, she recalls. It's a miracle we're still alive. It was terrifying. The hospital where Marina is recovering was hit in the morning. Dirt covers the blood from one of the injured. Closed-circuit television video from the city's cancer hospital captures the moment it was struck. Earlier this week, a missile barrage killed nine people and wounded more than 40 at this market. We were able to count 23 impact points in a radius of just 100 meters. And each one of these incoming rounds sprays shrapnel in every direction. 
Danilo was working in this store and rushed outside when he heard the blasts. Over there, a woman was screaming, help me. Her leg was shattered, he says. Behind the store, two people were killed. Dried blood and flowers marked the spot where people died. Last week, a bomb struck the regional governor's office, killing 36 people. Every day in Mykolaiv, this relentless bombardment shatters any semblance of normal life. Mid-afternoon and people line up to escape the danger. This bus bound for Poland. Victoria cradles her one-year-old daughter, Ivanna. Her husband stays behind. Soon we'll be back home, says Victoria. Everything will be all right. How soon that will be, nobody knows. And the mayor of Mykolaiv tells us already about a third of the population of this city has fled. Now it looks like more leaving. Jake? CNN's Ben Wiedemann live in Mykolaiv. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Also today, CNN getting a first look at the utter devastation and heartbreak left behind after Russian forces withdrew from the areas around Chernigiv, northeast of the capital of Kiev. CNN's Clarissa Ward is there for us right now live. Clarissa, tell us about the destruction you saw today and how the innocent civilians are coping with their losses there. So, Jake, you can probably see it's completely pitch black uh, behind me, and that's because there's still a blackout here. Even though Russian forces have withdrawn, no one here believes that this is going to be permanent. They live in fear after just weeks and weeks of a brutal assault from Russian forces were just 45 miles from the Belarusian border. So this place was very quickly surrounded. It was constantly bombarded. You can see some of the images we were able to capture today uh, from the northern part of the city in particular, which has just been absolutely devastated. All around, uh, people are still struggling because in addition to the bombardment, Jake, this was a city under siege. There was no food. There was no water. There's no electricity. There's still uh, no water and no electricity in many parts of the city. And they're just now starting to get a sense of the real scale and scope of the devastation, not just in terms of the damage to those buildings, but in terms of the number of people who have been killed and the number of people who died not because of the bombardment even, but because of the fact that they couldn't even get to the hospital. That is how intensive the shelling, the missiles, the relentless targeting of often civilian structures in this besieged city, Jake. And and Clarissa, uh, you came across a new cemetery in town. Tell us about that. So, first of all, when you arrive at the morgue now, uh, the local authorities are saying that 350 civilians were killed by bombardment alone. Many hundreds of others died, uh, often for simple health reasons, pneumonia, diabetes, a heart attack, which might have been treated had they been able to get to the hospital. uh, But, of course, they weren't because of that bombardment. And you can see those makeshift caskets that have been built. They basically have run out of coffins. People aren't making coffins anymore, and they can't can't keep up with the flow of the dead. So they're anticipating that they will find many more dead as they continue to sort of sift through the rubble. And as you mentioned, that new cemetery, because of the constant shelling, they weren't able to get 
to the city's main cemetery. They had to literally clear an entire wooded area and dig huge trenches and put the bodies of the dead in these trenches with these sort of small placards with their names on them. And what you see when you visit uh, this cemetery, Jacob, which is just so heart-wrenching to see, are people wandering through the cemetery, looking around and trying to find the graves of their loved ones, because for so many of them, they didn't know whether they had been killed, where they had been killed, had their body been taken to the morgue. There was a complete uh, blackout in terms of communications. They had no way to get in touch with each other. And as I said before, they're only starting now to get a sense of where their loved ones might be. And you see them walking through this cemetery, looking at every single placard, hoping to be able to find their family members, to be able to say that final goodbye, Jake. Mm. CNN's Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. History in the making. Uh, this afternoon, the U.S. Senate confirmed the very first black woman to the Supreme Court. How soon to be Justice Jackson might influence the high court. We'll take a look at that. Plus, an eyewitness account of the brutal horrors in Bucha from a Ukrainian parliament member who recently toured the devastation. Stay with us. Earlier today, the United Nations General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from its Human Rights Council. The vote was 93 countries in favor of the suspension, 24 opposed, 58 countries abstained. This comes after the horrific images and eyewitness accounts emerging of atrocities allegedly committed by Russian soldiers in places such as Bucha, Ukraine. My next guest is Oleksandr Morezko, he's a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He recently toured Bucha after the horrifying mass killings there, and he joins us now live from Kiev. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So you sent us some photos that you took in Bucha of the mass graves. Uh, before we show them, I want to warn our viewers, these are very disturbing um, before we show them. Uh, let's start with the, the mass graves. Um, we'll show those images. Tell us, tell us what we're looking at. Tell us about the mass graves you saw. Yeah, this is a mass grave which is located uh, uh, right next to the building of the church. And the church itself was also shelled, and it was obvious we could see the holes, for example, in the church. Uh, according to the priest, we talked to the priest, uh, uh, the, in this ma mass grave were around uh, 280 people. In the beginning, there were uh, 68, if I'm not mistaken, uh, dead bodies brought initially. And later, the death toll was growing. And do we have any idea who those individuals were? And, and did, the, did people witness uh, who did this? Uh, these were just civilians, people, absolutely peace, pe uh, peaceful people who lived in Bucha and uh, who became victims of Russian atrocities. They were killed. Uh, okay. They were killed by, by, by Russian troops. <clears throat> Um, let's show the pictures that you took uh, of, of buildings and cars that have been shelled beyond recognition, also in Bucha. Uh, civilians were there uh, when this was happening, when these munitions, these bombs were going off. What did local survivors have to tell you about what happened uh, to the pe people who lived in these apartments and these homes? Uh, many of those people who were in, in these apartments, in residential buildings, 
uh, were either killed or, or severely injured. I talked uh, to some people standing in the line to, to get humanitarian aid, and they were asking in the horror in their eyes, they were asking only one question, are they going to come back? Uh, this is the question about Russians. They were absolutely horrified, and I got impression that they wanted to forget this nightmare as soon as possible. And uh, I got an impression that it was not uh, just indiscriminate shelling. Uh, to me, it looked like it was deliberate shelling uh, to target uh, civilian objects, to target civilians. I understand you're from Kyiv. Uh, your city and its surrounding area, including Bucha, have faced so much shelling in this invasion. How are your family members? How are your fa- friends and neighbors? Well, I stayed with my family, two small children, two small daughters in Kiev. And um, since I'm a member of parliament, I think that we should be with our people. We didn't leave Kiev, even though half of the population of Kiev had to flee. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, she uh, used to live in Bucha. Uh, she, uh, I, I didn't know about her fate. I, I got in touch with her later. And she described situation, she said that she has never seen anything like that in her whole life. And she was lucky enough to escape through uh, the humanitarian corridor. She said that uh, she was lucky because before her escape and after her escape, it was impossible to use this humanitarian corridor because it was deliberately shelled by Russian troops. And there's this obviously this great fear uh, that the crimes that we committed that we saw committed in Bucha, the atrocities are happening all over Ukraine. And we just don't yet know about it because so many terrorists, so much territory is still under Russian control. Yes, unfortunately, we're only discovering these atrocities. Uh, we have learned recently about Borodyanka and some uh, some uh, people argue that situation in Borodyanka is even worse uh, in terms of humanitarian catastrophe. It was almost completely ruined. And uh, the, the most regrettable part, that Russia continues to commit these atrocities. They're continuing. Alexander Marashko, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Please stay safe. Um, coming up a moment the United States had never seen before today, the very first black woman ever confirmed to the nation's highest court. Stay with us. In our politics lead a major and historic day in the United States of America, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's official confirmation as the first black female United States Supreme Court justice. Judge Judge Jackson, rather, watched the moment from the White House with President Biden and with the first black female vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, presiding over the momentous vote. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. The vice president is, of course, the president, the presiding officer of the U.S. Senate. Joining us now to discuss CNN legal analyst and Supreme Court biographer Joan Biskupic. Joan, explain the, the historical significance of this confirmation. Thanks, Jake, and it's good to see you. 233 years the Supreme Court has existed in America, and only today 
for the first time has a black woman been confirmed to that bench. It's of the same magnitude as 1967, when Thurgood Marshall became the first African-American justice. 1981, when Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed as the first woman justice. And 2009, when Sonia Sotomayor broke a barrier as the first Hispanic justice. And if Judge, Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, serves as long as Stephen Breyer, whom she's succeeding, she will be on the bench until 2050, Jake. So quite a legacy for President Joe Biden. Long after he's gone, she will still be determining the law of the land. And as I know you're aware, she's not going to change right now the ideological balance on this court, which is six conservatives controlling and three liberals because she's succeeding another Democratic appointed uh, liberal. But, you know, she, she's going to bring youthfulness. She's 32 years younger than uh, Justice Breyer. She's got very distinct experience as a federal public defender. I never had uh, someone uh, like that on the bench. Uh, we have to go all the way back to Thurgood Marshall for someone who even had a record of advocating for criminal defendants. And she was a trial judge. Uh, that's distinct experience, too. Only Justice Sotomayor has that. So I think that she will impact this court in many ways, even though she will not change the ideological balance right away, Jake. Yeah, and uh, arguably she's more progressive than Stephen Breyer, who, when he was appointed, was something more of a in the center-left mold. Joan Biskupic, thank That's you right. so much. Good to see you, as always, also in our politics lead. An even more lopsided instance of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives voting 413 to 9 in favor of a Senate-passed bill that would ban U.S. imports of Russian oil, coal, and natural gas. This came as Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Europe meeting with NATO allies about still more sanctions on Russia and still more military aid for Ukraine. CNN's Phil Mattingly joins us now from the White House. Uh, and, and Phil, the Biden administration today defended its efforts to get help to Ukraine's military. Yeah, you mentioned lawmakers. I was texting with one earlier, said, what kind of weapons do you want to see sent to Ukraine? And all he responded was more. And I think the administration hears that, knows that, and is trying to respond to that, not just from Capitol Hill, but from Ukrainian officials as well. To this point, they have sent $1.7 billion in lethal assistance to Ukraine since the start of the war. And that is continuing every single day. Even a couple of days ago, Jake, uh, the administration okayed another $100 million in Javelin anti-tank systems at a specific request from Ukrainian officials. However, I asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about the efforts to get allied weapon systems, particularly S-300 surface-to-air missile systems, armor, how that process was going. She said it was still underway, no final decisions to announce yet, but that is a co critical component of lethal assistance the Ukrainians have requested and thus far have not received. Phil, also uh, today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, disclosed uh, that she tested positive for COVID. Uh, we should note she was with President Biden just yesterday. What does the White House have to say? Yeah, a wave has washed over public officials here in Washington. And President Biden was not just with Speaker Pelosi yesterday, also two days ago, very close quarters. However, the White House says the president is not a close contact with the speaker because it didn't accumulate more than 15 total minutes. At this point, he is not masking up. We saw the pictures of him with Ketanji Brown-Jackson earlier today. There is a public event to celebrate the Supreme Court confirmation tomorrow. He tested negative yesterday, still keeping a close eye on it. But right now, White House officials saying nothing major has changed, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, bearing witness to a brutal invasion in your own backyard. 
I'm going to talk to a Ukrainian journalist about covering this war while his own family is in danger. Stay with us. Turning back to our worldly, the challenges of reporting from a war zone that also happens to be your home. That's what Ukrainian reporters here are facing every day. Many on the front lines trying to bear witness to this brutal war, to tell these important stories, reporting on the atrocities committed by Putin's forces, even as this invasion is uprooting the lives of their families. Joining us now, Ukrainian journalist Romeo Kokratovsky, uh, live from Vyitsan in the center of the country. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like so many other Ukrainians, this war is greatly impacting you and your family in so many ways. You've been forced to evacuate your home near Kiev just a few days ago. Your in-laws' home, uh, also outside Kiev, was shelled by Russian forces. You posted this photo uh, of the destruction on Twitter, and you say it's a miracle that your father-in-law survived. Tell us uh, about what happened. Yeah, hi, Jake. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, well, the rest of the family uh, evacuated a few days before that attack. Uh, at the time, we'd known that the Russians were steadily making their way uh, down from Sumy, which is in the far northeast of the country on the Russian border, and they were making their way down the highway towards Kiev. Unfortunately, my in-law's village lay pretty much directly on that highway. Uh, so we knew that they were coming. My uh, brother-in-law and his family got out, and so did my mother-in-law, but my father-in-law was a little stubborn and decide to stay. Luckily, uh, the night, basically, before the uh, actual occupation of the village, he woke up in the middle of the night, went into the cellar, he had a bad premonition, and coming out in the morning, he saw that the house had gone shelled. If he hadn't just woken up, then I honestly shudder to think what, what could have happened to him. Is everyone in your family safe now? And, and how are... Uh, your in-laws dealing with the loss of their their home and their possessions. Yeah, thank thank God everyone is safe, but obviously it's been incredibly difficult. Um, the rest of of my family is still outside the village. They haven't come back. The government has not cleared it for rehabilitation. Um, the entire area was mined as the Russians were retreating, so it's incredibly dangerous. However, my uh, mother and father-in-law. They needed to see what, what happened. We'd known that it had gotten shelled, and we'd seen some pictures coming in from the village, um, but they needed to see what happened with their own two eyes. And at the moment, You're an... they're, they're struggling, to be honest. Um, it's, it's just absolutely devastated. I mean, half the house is gone. Um, the Russians stole everything that wasn't blown up, and at, we're, we're trying to figure out where, where to move forward from here. You're an editor for a news organization called The New Voice of Ukraine. Tell us about some of the dangers you and other Ukrainian journalists are facing as you try to report on, on what's happening here. I mean, luckily, um, my situation has been more or less safe, but um, a lot of journalists on the front lines have been wounded. They have been killed. A colleague of mine, Max Lebin, one of our one of the most talented photojournalists in the country, was shot uh, we found his body just a week ago um, in the north of Kiev. And another one of my colleagues was kidnapped and held by the Russians, by the FSB, it said, for a couple of days, where she was basically threatened into making a confession video 
Um, but luckily, she is unharmed. But still, this it is incredibly dangerous. Even now that the Russians have retreated from m- most of the north of the country, uh, there are still landmines everywhere. The Russians booby-trapped even the corpses that they shot. So coming out to even just document the atrocities that they've made um, is still incredibly dangerous. And of course, as the Russians are gearing up for a new offensive in the east and south of the country, uh, heading down there is going to be once again heading into an active war zone. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, earlier today, Russian journalist uh, Dmitry Muratov, who was the winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize, uh, said he was attacked with uh, red paint during a, a train ride in Russia. We're going to put up the pictures now. Uh, Muratov says the attackers yelled at him, quote, here's to you for our boys. I guess uh, doesn't think that Muratov was so supportive of, enough of, of Russian soldiers. And this attack came after Muratov announced that he's gonna, he was going to auction off his Nobel Prize in order to raise funds for Ukrainian refugees. Uh, as difficult as it is to be a Ukrainian journalist, uh, I'm sure you'll agree being a being a Russian journalist right now is, is just must be terrifying. I mean, they don't have an independent press anymore. They've implemented uh, such strict censorship in the country that it is more or less comparable to to the level of control that Goebbels had uh, in Nazi Germany. Absolutely nothing that the government doesn't sign off on gets printed, gets shown, gets run. Uh, it is in insanely dangerous to be an independent journalist in Russia now. I mean, it was never very safe before, uh, but at the moment, even the last vestiges of independence have completely disappeared from their media landscape. And so they're only receiving uh, these propagandized, absolutely false narratives uh, that the Putin regime wants to show the Russian people and nothing else. Uh, The fact that um, Muratov survived, to be honest, is an absolute miracle. Romeo, thank you so much for your time. Please stay safe. We appreciate it. And stay in touch with our show. We'd love to have you back. Coming up, a train filled with hope and stories of horror. Ivan Watson riding along with Ukrainians fleeing for their lives. That's next. In our world lead, a humanitarian catastrophe. That's what one Ukrainian military commander called the situation in Mariupol, warning that Russian military forces are trying to wipe the besieged city, quote, off the face of the earth. Ukrainians in the east and south have been desperately fleeing for weeks. And as CNN's Ivan Watson reports for us now, some civilians have managed to escape on evacuation trains and are sharing horror stories of what they have witnessed. Ukrainian families on the run. More than a month after Russia invaded, civilians are still fleeing from the threat of the Russian military, hurrying towards a waiting train. An air raid siren rings out as the train begins to move. This couple, just a few minutes too late. The evacuation train is now leaving the station. There are about 1,100 passengers on board this train. All of them are evacuees who are traveling for free. They'll be traveling for the next 24 hours. This train carrying this human cargo to safety in Western Ukraine. The war forced everyone here to flee their homes, including the crew of the train. Head conductor Sergei Grishenko ran the last train out of the city of Mariupol on February 25th, the day after Russia launched its invasion. 
There have been no trains from Mariupol since, as a month-long Russian siege has destroyed much of the city. My whole team, 20 conductors, everybody left with me. Many of them were made homeless, lost their apartments, some of them lost relatives. Grishenko says his team spent the next month living and working on the train non-stop, struggling to evacuate crowds of desperate and panicked Ukrainians, especially during the first weeks of the war. Sergei estimates that during the month that he and his team were working, they evacuated around 100,000 people. These days, the crowds have gotten smaller, but strangers are still packed together for this long trip. Everyone seems to be fleeing a different part of eastern Ukraine. Galina Bandarenka fled her village outside the city of Zaporizhia with her 19-year-old son after enduring two weeks of Russian shelling. I feel outrage, complete outrage, and I feel fear when they are shooting. Some evacuees brought their pets. The, uh, the kitten is handling the train ride a little bit better than the puppy. <laughs> the two families sharing this compartment met each other on the train for the very first time. I've been speaking with Katya, who is eight months pregnant right now, and she's traveling alone with her daughter heading west because they don't know what will happen. And I asked, where are you going to give birth to your child? And she said, well, wh wherever it's safe right now. And that's just, that's just an example of one family. Uh, she's left her husband behind. He's, he's serving in the military right now. Further down the train, I meet a group of women and children who just escaped southern Ukraine. How long did you live under Russian military occupation? Uh, one month, one month from uh, 27 February. How would you describe that experience? Mm, all this time I went outside only two times, just because I heard a lot of uh, cases of um, rape? rape, raping. In addition to hearing unconfirmed stories of rape, the women tell me they've seen drunk and filthy Russian soldiers asking residents for supplies like food and toilet paper. They just put red flags uh, on, the, on our building, main building. Which flags do they put? Russia flags, on, just like that. On the police station? Everywhere. They just love this, I think. And they think that flag can change our minds, our Ukrainian minds, but it's not work like this. I want the Russian people also come back on their land. They have a lot of land, just a lot of land on the map. And I hope it will be enough for them, just because enough. Stop, please. It's very painful for everyone here, for everyone in this train and outside. It's, it was very peaceful life without these attacks. I've gotten off after a relatively short journey. This train still has more than 20 hours to go across country. It'll end up in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. But for most of the more than 1,100 evacuees on board, all forced to flee their homes by this terrible war, their final destination is likely unclear. 
And Jake, as we speak, that train is still traveling. It still has more than 12 hours to go. Now, reporting on this, I learned a very interesting detail. Ukraine State Railways Company, it announced that after Russia invaded Ukraine, that there were more than 15,000 Russian railway cars on Ukrainian territory. And the Ukrainian government is planning to nationalize uh, that property. The state railway company says that there were only 482 Ukrainian cars on Russian territory. Either when Russia invaded, it anticipated it would take over the country quickly and not have to worry about its trains and its railway cars, or they just never took that into consideration when they invaded Ukraine and made it a truly hostile country. Jake? Hmm. Ivan Watson, a remarkable report uh, coming to us live uh, uh, from Kriver Rock, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. A source says that Germany has recordings of Russian soldiers describing atrocities that they carried out. How what they said could be used as evidence of war crimes. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 43 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. And we begin this hour with major fighting underway in eastern Ukraine and a haunting prediction from the country's top diplomat today in Brussels. The Battle for Donbass will remind you of Second World War. Either you help us now... And I'm speaking about days, not weeks. Or your help will come too late. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, there predicting large operations, major operations with thousands of tanks and armored vehicles, planes and artillery, and pleading once again for more weapons from NATO countries, including the U.S. Kuleba warning that sanctions cannot be seen as fully efficient and that the heaviest fighting is still to come. Meanwhile, Russian troops continue to bombard Ukraine's east. A Ukrainian government official says it is focused on the Donetsk and Luhansk regions in the southeast of the Donbass region, as well as Kharkiv, which is northeast. Today, one local leader said every hospital in the Luhansk area has been destroyed. We will have a special report on that coming up this hour. The top U.S. military officer, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley, today said that he expects Russia's war with Ukraine is going to, quote, be a long slog, with no signs on the horizon that the Kremlin will stop its aggression and its slaughter of innocent Ukrainian civilians. Now, Germany's Foreign Intelligence Service says it has intercepted radio communications where Russian soldiers can be heard talking about shooting civilians in Ukraine. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. CNN's Matthew Chance is in London for us. Matthew, this could theoretically bolster evidence that Russian troops committed actual war crimes. Yeah, I mean, it definitely could because, I mean, there's, and there's a growing body of evidence that that has indeed taken place. But the difficulty is, you know, linking Russian forces with specific deaths that can be sort of held up to judgment in any possible war crimes uh, tribunals in the future. And I think what's important about what we're, we're hearing uh, the German security forces have identified is radio intercepts, according to Der Spiegel, which first reported this, linking Russian forces with specific 
deaths that have been uh, recorded through, through other media. The Washington Post is also reporting that German intelligence has satellite images uh, of uh, Russian forces carrying out uh, specific uh, killings as well. And again, that's important because that, that linkage is crucial. There's bags of evidence out there of people having been killed, of course, uh, by Russian forces, but video of dead people does not constitute evidence of war crimes. You're looking for that it, you know, that, that linkage between the killing and the perpetrator of the killing. And I think that's what you know, the, the value potentially of this German intelligence um, uh, you know, may, may offer. All right, CNN's Matthew Chance in London with that reporting for us. Thank you so much. Now to the new warning from Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, saying that the heaviest fighting is still to come and telling NATO officials today that help is desperately and urgently needed in the battle for the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Many people will die. Many civilians will lose their homes. Many villages will be destroyed. Exactly because this help came too late. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live from Brussels. And, and Nick, the, the foreign minister is saying this is going to be a major military operation, the likes that Europe has not seen since World War II. Uh, what is the foreign minister specifically asking NATO for? Yeah, he came asking for three things, he said uh, in the morning. Weapons, weapons, weapons. He certainly has an audience that appreciates what he's saying at NATO, that understands it. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg of NATO said that uh, he believed that Russia was regrouping for this big push. The evidence is there. Cities like Mariupol. People have questioned, uh, you know, how can Russia control areas of Ukraine? It takes over well by destroying so much of the building structures that civilian pop, the civilian population live in. It means when the people are driven out and can eventually get out, um, there is no one, nowhere for them to go back to. And that makes those areas easier for Russia to control. And that's why the foreign minister has such an urgency in his voice. It's not just a fight to control that land, but it's a fight to keep the towns and structures in place as they are so that when the war abates and there is a peace and if they've had to move back they can come forward and go back to their homes again potentially um, and not the destruction. So the message to NATO was that very clear. Weapons, 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 now, now, now. Jake? And how are U.S. and NATO officials responding? <clears throat> this is really interesting because just a couple of days ago we were hearing that there would be tanks being sent, that there would be armored fighting vehicles being sent, all to help the Ukrainians fight this new phase of the war where Russia's regrouped, where it's coming back. It doesn't have extended supply lines like it had around Kyiv that allowed uh, the Ukrainians to make really solid and strong gains after a lot of very hard fighting. This will be different. Um, and, but NATO uncharacteristically, both the Secretary General Stoltenberg and uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, refused to be drawn on exactly what weapons would be given, perhaps not to give away tactics to Russia, perhaps also to try to diminish the tensions between NATO and Russia. Um, obviously, Ukraine has tanks now, but if it's telegraphed and too strongly told that they're going to get additional tanks through NATO partners, when those tanks fire on Russian troops, Russia could turn its attention and escalate tensions with NATO. Um, so no detail. That was interesting. And it's a change. 
Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. CNN's Nima Albagar joins me now live from Lviv. She is, of course, our chief international investigative correspondent. Uh, Nima, so good to see you. Thanks for being here. So today the U.N. General Assembly uh, voted to suspend Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council. Does that mean anything? Uh, What is the significance? Well, it sends a message, but it also robs Russia of a pretty crucial platform from which it was perpetuating a lot of the propaganda for years, actually, around this idea that actually it's it's U.S. overreach. It's United States imperialism. It's the it's NATO and the European Union that are incurring into Russia's backyard. So the message is pretty significant. Unfortunately, the message to be backed up by reality. I, I don't really see how you move forward when Russia is a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council. And you also have these the ongoing issues Surrounding perhaps, surrounding perhaps a little shakiness in the moral ground beneath the United States. Feet. Because of the Iraq war? Because of the Iraq war. Because of uh, perhaps some of the misrepresentations around Libya. Or China at the time felt that, that Libya was not sold as an on-the-ground intervention. That it was supposed to be just air cover to protect civilians. So you have a lot of, you have a lot of uh, cracks in the, in the firmament of what is supposed to be this international coalition that is reassuring the civilians here where we are, that the world is behind them. You also have the United States that's only just rejoined the UN Human Rights Council, that itself is not a member of the International Criminal Court, mm. that, that isn't keen to see American soldiers prosecuted. How do you square that? And Russia was using the UN Human Rights Council to, to point out all those different ways in which the U.S.'s message was not marrying with the way it was behaving itself on the world stage. How does the U.S. thread the needle there, presuming that there is ultimately some sort of international criminal court tribunal or investigation into what Russian soldiers are alleged to have done here, considering the fact that the U.S. is not a signatory to the, US, to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court? I mean, is there a case to be made? Well, the UK and the European Union and others have pushed forward the referral, and that has been incredibly helpful. But the problem that we keep returning to is, is the US a credible interlocutor? Are they a credible platform? And unfortunately, given recent history, they're not. Whether it's the Iraq war, whether it's the pardoning of, of war criminals by former President Trump, it, it creates this morass. And Russia is very good in terms of disinformation and exploiting those moments. And, and it feels here, it, just even from Lviv, we're at an inflection point where Russia is able to comfortably use its own territory as a staging ground. We've been following some of the, the range of the ordinances that they've been firing. It is potentially a very, very difficult time because Russia can safely attack civilians from its own territory. And, and if you can't figure out a way to prosecute Russian soldiers, there's no way to kind of pull back any of this and no way to reassure the civilians here that the world really is behind them in a meaningful way. Nimal Bagger, thank you so much. Appreciate that perspective. Coming up, they traveled hundreds of miles from the front lines to a hospital here in western Ukraine. They were seeking care. They were seeking safety. I visited with some civilian survivors of Putin's war. You do not want to miss their stories. Plus, I'm going to talk to a Republican senator and her Democratic colleague who are teaming up to punish Putin. Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, American lawmakers are reaching across the aisle to try to come together to punish Putin's Russia for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. 
One of those bipartisan bills is the Russian Federation Suspension Act, which would direct the Secretary of State to suspend Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council, Interpol, and the G20, and discourage international investment in Russia. Joining us now live to discuss in their first joint interview, the co-sponsors of this bill, Republican Senator and combat veteran Joni Ernst of Iowa and Democratic Senator Chris Van Holland of Maryland. Senator Ernst, um, today we saw the U.N. suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. Why is it also so critical, do you think, uh, for Russia to be cut off from these other international diplomatic groups? Yes, and thank you so much, Jake. We want you to be safe. But I am thankful that the UN did suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council and that Ambassador Thomas Greenfield used her voice. And I'm so thankful that she stood up and really pushed this issue. But as for the other agencies, the G20, the Interpol, and discouraging other types of economic development in Russia, we know that we have to push back very hard against Vladimir Putin and cut off any uh, direct activities that would encourage cooperation with Russia. This is so important to help bring the Ukrainian-Russian war to an end. Senator Van Hollen, we have heard uh, people in the Biden administration, uh, notably climate change envoy Senator John Kerry, uh, talking about the need to continue to work with Russia. We've also heard individuals in the Biden administration talk about the need uh, to have Russia on board uh, for potential uh, diplomatic negotiations with Iran. Uh, should those two efforts be scotched as well? Well, the, the JCPOA, and uh, it's great to team up with uh, uh, Joni Ernst, Senator Ernst, on, on this bipartisan legislation. We may have differences on the JCPOA. I think that that's in our interests uh, to pursue. Uh, Russia has a pretty bit part uh, in that. Um, but I do agree that we need to ostracize Russia, make it a pariah state uh, in these international uh, organizations on top of our efforts to impose increasingly punishing sanctions and, of course, uh, to provide Ukrainian uh, forces with, with the weapons they need. I think those three things, weapons, punishing sanctions, and what Senator Ernst and I teamed up to do, which is to isolate Russia in these international organizations like the Human Rights Council. At the same time uh, that we're collecting evidence on Putin's war crimes, which are evident for everybody who has eyes to see, uh, they shouldn't also uh, have a role on that on that council. Senator Ernst, last night, the House of Representatives passed a separate bill that would require the State Department to report and preserve evidence of war crimes committed by Russia in Ukraine. I was kind of surprised to see anybody voted against it, but specifically six House Republicans voted against it. Congressman Thomas Massey and Scott Perry, Warren Davidson, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, and then, of course, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, today, seven Republicans and two Democrats voted against a bill to ban Russian oil, gas, and coal. And then, of course, there were more than 60 House Republicans that did not vote in support of a, of a statement in favor of the NATO values. What's going on? There, there does seem to be a number of your fellow Republicans uh, who are in, for want of a better term, some sort of Putin caucus. 
Yeah, I would say, Jake, it is more of an isolationist attitude. And uh, while I agree with America first, it certainly is not America alone. And you see great bipartisanship throughout the House and the Senate with my friend Chris Van Hollen. Of course, we've found ways to work together to make sure that we are uh, enabling Ukraine to help them win this violent and bloody war, this invasion by uh, Russia, push back on Vladimir Putin. And I think that's what we need to focus on and stress to those members why this is important to America, why this is important for the stability of Europe and for the world. Again, America first, but certainly America can't do this alone. So we do need to engage. And again, that's why this Russian Federation Suspension Act with Chris Van Hollen is so important. And I'm glad to be working in a bipartisan way to get this over the finish line. Senator Van Halen, uh, quickly, if you could, uh, I'm just wondering if you think that the Biden administration is doing enough uh, to cut through the red tape uh, to get whatever weapons and armaments and military aid is needed here in Ukraine. You heard the Ukrainian foreign uh, secretary uh, make a desperate plea today. Well, Jake, I think we're all impatient uh, to get uh, Ukraine the weapons it needs as fast as possible. I know that that's the administration's goal. I know they're working uh, as fast as they can with our allies, but we got to get them the S-300s now. Uh, we got to get them the switchblades. Uh, I will say that, that Congress uh, sat for a little while on the effort to terminate most favored nation status, but we also did get that done today. A hundred senators just voted to cut off uh, Russia's um, trade. So we are moving ahead in the right direction, and as Joni said, mostly on a, a bipartisan basis. It is good to see bipartisanship in this time. Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, thank you so much. Appreciate, appreciate your time today. Coming up, to understand the horrors of this war, talk to the survivors in the streets, in the hospitals. Coming up, I'm going to talk to one woman who has been trying to recover from her war injuries for a month. She was just an innocent civilian hit by one of Putin's bombs, and she might never walk again. That's next. The reality here in Ukraine is that no hospital is safe from the munitions uh, fired by Vladimir Putin's forces. We just visited a hospital in western Ukraine to speak with civilian victims of Putin's war, people who endured long, painful journeys covering hundreds of miles from the front lines of this war. Their journeys, in many cases, took multiple days just to find treatment, just to find a chance to heal in relative safety. Just as Putin's forces did in Syria, so too are they targeting hospitals and medical centers here in Ukraine. 279 hospitals have been damaged since the war started, according to the Ukrainian health minister, with 19 of them completely decimated, forcing thousands of innocent Ukrainian civilians wounded in Russian attacks in the east and south to be shuttled hundreds of miles to hospitals in western Ukraine to fight to stay alive, such as Olga Zuchenko. Do you ever think you'll be able to go back to your normal life? Yes. She ran a grocery store in the Luhansk region with her husband, Maxim Alexandrov, when seven bombs hit their neighborhood, shrapnel pummeling her apartment balcony. I have lost everything. I have lost my flat, my property, my health. 
We didn't expect to see it. We always have counted Russians as brotherly people. We never hoped they will exterminate us like that. Olga has been here in this hospital, in this bed for one month. She may never walk again. Their elderly neighbor was killed in the same attack. They tell me she had been so scared she stayed with them for a few days before her life was so brutally and unfairly snuffed out by Putin's bombs. By now, it is clear these attacks on civilian apartment buildings are no accident. Entire civilian city blocks in Irpin and Mariupol, residential apartment buildings, have been obliterated. The facts lead to only one conclusion. The Russians are purposely slaughtering Ukrainians, moms and dads, children, grandparents. The Russian government, of course, denies targeting civilians. A group of American doctors with expertise in war injuries because of unfortunate American experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq were visiting the hospital when we were there, meeting with the mayor of Lviv, sharing what they knew about war wounds. We wanted to share information from our experiences in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and in the civilian uh, hospitals in the U.S. Thank you for visit, thank you for support, and thank you for cooperation. It is very important for Ukraine and for the United States and for future. These are brutal injuries that are unfamiliar to young surgeons in Western Ukraine. Dr. Hanat Huck, chief surgeon, has seen an influx of thousands of these patients. The injury that we have now is unbelievable. What do you want the world to know about what you're seeing here? I want the world to know that uh, they need to know that the Russian forces, they don't fight with the, with the Ukrainian army. They fight with the Ukrainian people. They kill in civilians, they kill in children, they destroy our country. Shrapnel, shrapnel now in my back, in my feet, everywhere. Before he was a patient whose body is now riddled with shrapnel when his home was hit, Yuri Kanan from the Luhansk region was an anesthesiologist. The flat where we lived in is destroyed. My parents' flat is destroyed. My wife's flat is destroyed. We lost everything. He has a number an army medic wrote on his arm so they could keep track of patients needing help in the chaos of the war. Causing war, creating war, is not just directly inflicting pain with bullets and bombs on a people. It's also creating conditions of desperation, which poses a whole other set of problems, whether disease or, or starvation or, or panic. And these secondary effects from the chaos of Putin's war can also be fatal. We had a happy life. Everything was perfect, and then everything changed very abruptly. We met Ola Akenshein on her 45th birthday. She and her husband Alex and 10-year-old son had been hiding in their basement in the Kharkiv region for a month. The shelling, they say, was relentless. We should... We were so afraid, especially our kid was so afraid that we couldn't stay anymore. When the building next door was flattened, she was so scared for her son's life, they got in their car and fled. She had not slept for two days. She was in a horrific car accident. When I got in my first hospital in Kilmelski, 
they couldn't help and operate severe broken skull and bones. So you can't see right now? Only silhouettes, like very far away. You think you'll ever go back to the life you had? I hope it will. The school where my child learned has been destroyed, but I hope if our house stays safe that we will return, rebuild. Our neighbor will rebuild our village, our town. I love my Ukraine so much. I would only want to live here in Ukraine. Putin fashions himself an alpha male, a tough guy. One has to wonder why Putin thinks slaughtering civilians, seniors, women and children, mutilating women such as Olga and Olha, are those the actions of a strong, powerful man, or are they the actions of someone else, someone weaker and pathetic? Seeing the images, it is hard to imagine living in Bucha. One woman hid from Russian forces for days. Her harrowing story of escape is next. We're back with our world lead as the world grapples with the images from Bucha. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken had this warning. Take a listen. For every Bucha, there are many more towns Russia has occupied and more towns it is still occupying. Places where we must assume Russian soldiers are committing more atrocities right now. Joining us now, someone who witnessed those atrocities firsthand, Yana Rudenko. She sheltered in Bucha for 14 days with her boyfriend. Yana, we're so glad that you are safe now. You were hiding from Russians in a basement for days. How were you getting information while you were down there? How were you getting food or water? Um, hello, uh, Slava Ukraini. Um, it was uh, yes. the most crucial is the lack of information. Uh, the lack of information and how hard it was get uh, we could get it, and um, uh, because uh, Russians uh, Russian soldiers were blocking uh, uh, connection, and uh, we had just one point, one place where we could get the information where the the connection was uh, good, good enough. Uh, so it was uh, it was super hard, and f- I can say that uh, connection it's the most crucial. Uh, thing in this uh, in the whole story and there was a strike on a building close to you you sent us this video uh, of blood on the stairwell leading into the shelter tell us what happened uh, um, uh, one evening um uh, I was in the basement, but uh, my boyfriend and uh, uh, his brother decided to go to the apartment uh, to check some stuff, uh, uh, to check uh, cats because uh, we were having like we are having four cats. And uh, uh, in one moment, uh, we heard like uh, like super uh, loud sound. And uh, when I was in the basement, like uh, literally everything started vibrating. And um, uh, it was a plane that dropped mine on the uh, house, uh, on the building uh, next door. And uh, the fifth, uh, fifth uh, part of the, of, the, of the building is like destroyed. And uh, actually, uh, that was a building where me and my boyfriend uh, were living. Uh-huh. Yes. 
So it's just just plain as a Russian plane that uh, dropped a mine, and uh, uh, I don't know. It is. It was uh, uh, just randomly. He dropped it randomly on on civil on uh, c- civilian uh, uh, where where civilians live. We've seen these horrible images out of Bucha. Is everyone from your family or all of your friends accounted for and okay? Uh, yes, uh, my friends are okay, but uh, friends of my friends uh, who uh, who were living in Bucha for longer period, uh, they got hurt. And uh, there is a famous photo of, uh, uh, of uh, women um, hand uh, with uh, red nails. Uh, uh, that was actually um, this woman was uh, quite uh, um, not famous, but uh, uh, people in Busha um, knew her, and uh, like it is lost for for many people. Yana Rudenko, we're so glad you're okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We have more ahead from Ukraine, but we are also following breaking news out of Israel. At least two people have been killed, and Israeli officials say many more are wounded. Following a shooting in Tel Aviv, this attack comes as that city and that country are already on edge. There have been three separate terrorist attacks last month in Israel, leaving 11 people dead. Those earlier attacks have been blamed on ISIS and Palestinian terrorists. Police in Tel Aviv do not know who carried out this most recent attack in the middle of the city, they say. But militant groups, terrorist groups in Gaza and the West Bank have praised the shooting, though no one has yet claimed responsibility. How determined civilians and a colorful band of grandmothers in one Ukrainian small town fought off a Russian invasion? That's next. As Russian troops advance in the east of Ukraine and the south of Ukraine, Ukrainian civilians continue to show heroism and courage in the face of so much brutality. Townspeople in Voznesensk, which is north of Odessa, defended their town by working with the Ukrainian military, feeding information on Russian troop positions. CNN's Ed Levandera filed this report. The sign into town reads, Russian soldier, you will die here. The Russians didn't listen. This is the story of how the small city of Voznesensk fought off the Russian invasion in early March. Yevgen Velichko is the mayor of this city of 30,000 people. He took us to the bridge, at least where the bridge used to be, where Ukrainian soldiers, volunteer fighters, and a fearlessly creative cast of civilians stared down the Russians. How close did the Russians get to taking over this city? You can see over here on the other side of, of the bridge, in the distance there, just on the other side of the bridge, a row of tires, and that's as close as the Russian tanks came. The mayor says the Ukrainians blew it up so that the Russians couldn't cross into the heart of the city. That sparked a two-day confrontation. Thousands of residents were trapped on the other side of the bridge, the only section of the city Russian forces invaded. This man named Ivan lives in a house along the main road into town. Several homes and cars around him were scorched in the firefight. 
he hid inside with his elderly mother as the Russian tanks swarmed his neighborhood. He describes how terrifying it was, several homes blown up around him, constant barrage of gunfire, but he tells us he actually didn't see it, he had to hide inside his home, but just the sound of it was terrifying. Various cameras captured the images of the Russian military vehicles with the letter Z emblazoned on the side. The mayor says three columns of Russian soldiers moved into the city. One military official says the Russians invaded with at least 100 tanks and armored personnel carriers and as many as 500 soldiers. So this is Ghost. He's asked that we not use his full name and he is the head of a reconnaissance unit here in this town that was instrumental in fighting back the, the Russians. Um, and this was the spot, this was the spot where you fought the Russians. He says he thinks that's a blood stain there. Wow. The remnants of a, of a Russian meal. When they were advancing towards the bridge, thanks to the Ukrainian military forces, the Air Assault Brigade, the Territorial Defense and our Recon Squad, we fought them off. Here we showered them with artillery and we destroyed them. The Ukrainians blew up multiple bridges in the city to keep the Russians from moving into this town that sits at a strategic crossroads in southern Ukraine and kept Vladimir Putin's army from invading deeper into the country. So we are standing uh, in, in this spot just on the edge of the city. Multiple Russian tanks were taken out here. We're actually standing uh, in the ashes of one of those tanks and there were at least two Russian soldiers that were killed in this very spot. We are strong. Our city is strong. Our spirit is strong. When the enemy came, everyone rose up, from kids to the elderly. Hiding residents called in the locations of Russian soldiers. Others ran ammunition and supplies wherever it was needed. The Russians had more firepower, had more weapons than you guys had. They were powerful. They had tanks, they had APCs, a lot of wheeled vehicles. But we stronger, smarter and more tactical. Are you worried that they're going to come back for revenge after you guys embarrass them? No, it's them who should be afraid. They should know if they come here, they will remain here as cargo to hundred. We already have refrigerators for their bodies and we can bring more. In a small village on the edge of Vozniensensk, one resident captured the first sounds of the invading Russian convoy. But the Russian soldiers weren't ready to face the grandmothers of Stepova Street. 88-year-old Vera walked out, armed with her canes, and fired off an epic tirade of verbal artillery. No, I they say they were chased out of their homes and robbed, but the women relish telling this story with laughter. I ask if they're worried the Russians will return to seek revenge. They tell me they're not going anywhere. 
Jake, while the grandmothers might be smiling tonight, uh, we should point out that inside the city, there is a sense, a very heightened sense of tension about what's coming next. There's a great distrust of outsiders. They're worried about what's coming, but they also say they are preparing for what could be a very uh, second round of fighting uh, in that very city. And we should point out one of the reasons for that is because of what we just experienced here in Odessa a few hours away. Just a short while ago, we heard two loud uh, missile explosions here in the city, followed by a barrage of uh, anti-air defense uh, firing from uh, the, the ground here. So, uh, you know, an, an active night in, in a region that is expecting more fighting. Jake? I'd love Andara. Thank you so much for that report. Of all the horrific images of this war, some strike right in the hearts of the world. We can now tell the story of this woman murdered by Russian troops while simply riding her bike. Stay with us. In our worldly, there have been many stories and many images from Ukraine these last few weeks that have captured the world's attention. One of those images is this photograph from the massacre in Bucha. The woman was a mother of two daughters. She was senselessly gunned down by Russian forces as she rode her bike home. CNN's Phil Black joins us now here live in Lviv with more on this. Phil, this is a, a heartbreaking story. What more are you learning about this woman? Well, Jake, Irina thought that she could endure and survive the Russian occupation. On the day she died, she told one of her daughters, don't worry about me, I can move mountains. So perhaps no surprise that those who know her describe her as fierce, but also loving and loved. And ultimately, it just didn't occur, perhaps not unreasonably, didn't occur to this 52-year-old woman that she would be deliberately targeted by the heavy guns of two uh, Russian armoured vehicles. A warning, this report does have some graphic images. Irina Filkina in a happier time, before the Russians came. It's likely this video shows Irina after the invasion in early March, just moments before her death. She's seen cycling through Bucha, heading towards a large number of Russian vehicles. As she approaches a corner, she dismounts. One of the vehicles fires. She moves around the corner, out of sight, and it fires again and again, at least five more times. Then, a large muzzle flash from a second concealed vehicle. Moments later, smoke rises from near that corner. A different video, geolocated by CNN, to the same corner shows a dead woman on the ground next to a bike. Other images of that body clearly show her hand and her distinctive nails. The woman who only recently taught Irina how to apply makeup recognized them instantly. He um, drew uh, cards uh, on her finger because she uh, started to love herself. This woman was incredible. Olga Shiruk didn't need to see the nails to know that was her mother's body. She tells me she doesn't know what she feels now. It's such a void, she says. When I saw it was my mother, the war faded away. The war ended with her, and I lost the war. Olga says her mother called her while she was cycling that day, not long before she was killed. She'd been sheltering at her workplace and decided to go home because she thought it would be safer. Tell us about your mother. How would you like the world to know her? 
She says Irina had a hard life, overcoming obstacles, only really starting to live in the last two years. But she could do the impossible and inspired others to believe they could too. Elsewhere in Bucha, someone recorded the moment three men were found, all face down in a yard, all shot in the head. This video is how Olga Goraviluk found out her son, Roman, and son-in-law, Sergei, had been killed. She says, I don't want to live anymore. The grief. I cry day and night. I don't know how to live. Images from Bucha have taught the world undeniable truths about the brutality of Russia's invasion. For some, that knowledge is deeply personal and impossibly painful. Jake, these are just two families directly impacted by the atrocities in Bucha, and they want the world to know and understand what happened there. But they also want those they've lost to be remembered for who they were, not just as victims or brutalized bodies left behind in Russia's retreat. You know, when the world started reporting this, the uh, Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavlov, uh, said it was hysteria. We were being hysterical for reporting these images. Amazing reporting, Phil. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It's just a horrible, horrible set of circumstances. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper, or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back again at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight with more from Lviv, more from our incredible team of reporters on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you in a few hours. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.